Hello, I'm Matt Price, and this is Conversations with Criminals. Today's guest joined an animal rights group when he was age 15, and by the age of 17, he had been approached by the police to inform on his friends. He tells me about being a hunt saboteur, about the understandable paranoia within the organisation that he joined, and one of the most interesting things for me, I suppose, was the relationship that he had with the police. His future was nearly ruined, just seemingly on a whim. And you'll see what I mean by this. I am not for one second calling anyone within the animal rights community a criminal. That's not what this is about. I just wanted to understand a different world. And it is a different world and something that I knew nothing about. So I found this one really interesting. And at some point, I will be speaking to, for want of a better expression, a career activist. And I'll be very much looking forward to that too. Now, this was recorded over the internet, so the sound quality is actually very good, but it's different to usual. It sounds like we're on the telephone. We weren't. Hope you enjoy this one. As I said, I found it really, really interesting. So, enjoy. I think 2005, 2006, I opened up a, a video it was one of those, if you watch this video, you can play this game for free things. I opened it up and it was a video for, a, it was Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. I remember it really clearly doing a, a video for a charity called Peter about um, cat and dog fur. And it opened up this massive rabbit hole. And I was probably about 15, I think. I spent like right. days googling uh googling this charity all of their campaigns everything they did and the more i got into it i eventually found that there was a similar slightly more grassroots group like campaign group in my local area i grew up in i grew up between southampton and portsmouth and uh, there was this local group operating out of that area and I, they were running, they called it their Cruelty Free Fair. They took over Southampton Guildhall, ran this Cruelty Free Fair. Uh, and from there, I ended up meeting loads of fascinating people. I met, I met hunt saboteurs, uh, ended up going out sabotaging hunts. Uh, I met protest groups. Genuinely, I think when you, when I explain it to people, I still now always see myself as the good guy. See, you mentioned being a hunt saboteur. Talk, talk me through yeah. that. How, how does that work? They used to pick us up just outside Croydon and we'd drive down into the home counties in the back of Land Rovers. Everyone would chip in for petrol. You'd have worked out. You either got tipped off by, um, by people inside their community or you just had to play a, a cat and mouse. I think cat and mouse is probably the wrong thing we talk about animal rights, but you used to have to play this game where we used to have to identify which hunts were out, where they were. And when I started hunt stabbing, it was just after the hunting act had come in. Uh, and a lot of countryside people were still very, very determined to keep going with the way of life that they'd had for hundreds of years. So we used to, I mean, we call it hunt monitoring, which is where you get out your video camera and just film and you'd be there as a, a witness if they were breaking the law. Because also a lot of like rural police um, sort of groups didn't want to enforce this hunting app because it was their community. They'd either grown up in it and they were like very pro hunting or 
if you work in a small village, uh, you know, like if you interfere with the hunt, you're interfering with a big chunk of the community and that makes your job as a policeman a lot harder. And it's only years later that I understand that, but there was a real reluctance from the police to sort of do anything about illegal hunting. So it fell down to us. We were sort of like, almost like vigilantes. And we'd go out in the back of these Land Rovers We'd, we'd chase the hunt. There was a couple of times where we'd, um, we'd have bottles of citronella. It's basically like a spray that you find in a lot of perfumes, but it perfectly masked the scent of a fox. So if a fox ran across the road, you could run after it, throw down a load of citronella, and when the, the dogs get to it, they can't, they can't smell the fox anymore, and you can let the fox escape. But that was one of the things. We also used to carry um, like beagle horns. So similar to what the hunt used, uh, and you could use that to distract and confuse the dogs. But yeah, I've got real vivid memories of running around the new forest in camo trousers, being being chased by men on horses was a really weird thing that I remember. This is like going back a good 10 years now. It's probably 10 years since I went out stabbing last. Okay. Why, why were they chasing you? What would they do if they caught you? I mean, would it have, would it have got violent? Did it ever get violent? You know what? It it did, never with me. I think I was just really lucky because I always looked like a weedy kid who was way too easy to be a victim. But there was plenty of stories uh, going around. There's still plenty of footage on, on YouTube of um, of like sabs that I was at where like I've seen videos and I've, I've seen, I've seen hunters like smash windows. Uh, they had what they used to call terrier boys, uh, which was, a group of like they weren't hunters but they would right. go around on the back of dirt bikes and air commas protect the hunt from us and they would go out of their way to uh to threaten us they'd be very in our faces and it was it was like a weird almost like a football factory but for hunting of people that were just there for the violence that's really interesting so, so sort of hunt protectors or hunter neighbourers. Yeah, and they were quite often they were paid for by the hunt, uh, and because it was happening in fields, there was never any CCTV cameras, and this was at a time where like mobile phone footage was grainy at best. So there was a lot more stuff happening just because there was a lot less evidence to to protect people. Right. Like there's yeah, plenty okay. of footage of them surrounding uh like cars like going after especially it sounds terribly sexist now but like if ever a female hunt sab got separated from our group you'd actually be worried for their safety yeah that that's reasonable isn't it yeah. is it sex well yeah i think that's i think that's all right so how how do you gain the trust within that community then because Presumably, it's quite secretive. I mean, it has to be. You can't just announce it to, to everyone. How how does a young yeah. man or woman decide to be part of that community? What do you, what did you have to do? You know, what was I was asking myself. I was asking myself this exact question really recently because I know as well, like this entire organisation that we had worked worked incredibly efficiently, but. On paranoia, you were always really paranoid. Even when I was working for like legal campaigns, uh, you'd always be really worried when someone new showed up. And you'd always have in your mind what an undercover police officer looked like because they would. They put undercover 
police into protest groups and, and they did up until like late like into the 2010s they were still using undercover operatives one of them got exposed a couple of years ago for having sex with protesters it's horrendously unethical and i just i was thinking really specifically about how i got like welcomed so openly i guess my advantage was that i was just probably way too young to be a highly trained police officer I was once asked by the police if I'd like to inform on a group of my best friends and the the police told me that they would if I wanted to they would organize for us to meet in a hotel room or a restaurant how creepy does that sound uh, Amazing. we could do it in public or private and I could give them as much or as little information as I wanted and they'd make it very worth my while that's extraordinary. So how, how did they contact you regarding that? It, literally, I was... So I went to this protest and for some reason, I don't know what it is, but they he definitely, like, identified... So they had this task force whose literal job was, yeah, again, air commas, um, preventing domestic extremism, which is what they thought of as, as protest groups at the time. And they knew... Right who I was and this is the one time this is obviously the one time that I wasn't getting a lift with someone else or anyone else was riding in my car and literally in that one moment where I was on my own I was walking to a car park opposite a PC world and these two policemen just stepped out of the essentially the bushes approached me at my car and delivered me this this message that if I would like to inform on anyone I know in the industry, particularly, and they gave me like a list of names of people that I couldn't like, that they were particularly interested in hearing about. And one of them is someone that I know that you're going to talk to like in the future. I immediately went and just called that guy and was like, Hey, just so you know, the police want me to inform on you. Wow. And what was his reaction to that? He's like, Oh Yeah. Cool. And I think, like like I said, there was this horrendous paranoia, which was actually totally warranted, where we all knew we were being watched. Like, I got pulled over when I was in my 20s. I went home from university and I went to pick up a friend of mine who who lived, I don't know, 10 minutes away from, from a known animal testing lab, which conveniently had uh, been broken into the night before I went to pick her up. And I was driving to pick her up, and from nowhere, we got pulled over. I saw these flashing blue lights, and as the policeman approached the car, I wound down my window. I looked him straight in the eye, and I just went, oh, for fuck's sakes, Martin, what are you doing? And it literally, I don't know, my car flagged up or something, but I wasn't, I wasn't on the road where, where this break-in had happened. But I was in the area, my car had got flagged, and the next thing I knew, I was being pulled over, and he waited until I'd gone exactly three miles an hour over the speed limit to pull me over, just to and as he called it, a catch-up chat. Wow. Well, when I called up and I said, you know what, um, we've, I've been asked to inform on you, there was this, um, there was this kind of like, oh, yeah, obviously, at some point they were going to target you to do that. That that's amazing. So I'm assuming that there would there would have been other people who were asked to inform as well. And I know this is very personal, but does that mean that there would have been people from the community 
who would have informed. Oh, yeah, there was definitely people that would have snitched. And there were definitely, like, everything you see in films about plea bargains, about getting time off sentences, about getting something dropped if you give them something else, totally happened. Yeah. And we were all aware of it as well. Like, we made it our job to know as much about the police who made it their job to know about us. And there was probably, a, like, at the point where where it was getting really bad we had i had friends in prison i had friends on the outside i was conscious that i was being watched all the time i had i had one weird situation when i was about 17 where a policeman said to me we're at a really small protest they put this injunction in place that meant only six people could protest outside this site that was owned by a massive pharmaceutical company so only six people could protest a week and I was one of the six on this one week. And this policeman came up to me and he went, oh, Drew, how's your girlfriend this week? And I was like, why? He said, well, um, obviously she had a, a cold last week. And I was like, oh, where'd you see my girlfriend? He's like, oh, no, I, I didn't see her. I just obviously she had a she had a cold. She sounded uh, pretty hoarse on the phone. And I realized that I was 17 years old. Why attacked by Hampshire police? A lot of this I can't say for certain. And yeah, again, with all the, the like, I, I keep calling it paranoia and it's almost like conspiracy. You can only really speculate why. But the theory that we always had in, inside the movement was that we were being incredibly effective. Uh, we were running this campaign called Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty. It ran off the back of, of a documentary that Channel 4 made at the end of the 90s where they went inside Europe's largest animal testing lab as a, a group that tests things uh, like, like all the GlaxoSmithKline products, even, even their food products, things like Pringles being tested on animals. So uh, like they were doing, sure, they were doing medical research, which some people might argue is ethical. They were also testing a whole load of things that just seemed unnecessary on animals. And in the 90s, there was this expose about that which spurred this campaign that became so effective that the share price uh, plummeted and the problem with vivisection is that it's heavily taxed and encouraged by governments and they can make a lot of money out of it so our theory was always that we were costing someone not just the company a lot of money and that was why Huntington Life Sciences had been bailed out by by the UK government two, maybe three times. And that was why there was a specialist task force assigned to watch us. Uh, that was why these companies would spend hundreds of thousands of pounds processing injunctions to limit the amount of people that could be outside their offices in any one week and where we could congregate and how long we were allowed to use megaphones for. And we were still, at this time, still determined that we were operating inside the law to to force change tell me tell yeah. me about the people who, who went to prison and how you communicated with them and did they ever talk about what it was like for them to be inside amongst I, sort of criminals yeah i i mean i visited several of the prisoners i was really really close with, with and his now wife and when they went to prison i'd write to them as often as i could and then what was really weird about is that literally the day that he got released, he disappeared. 
And I just assumed that he was, you know, trying to start again, didn't want the old friends he had, didn't realize that a condition of his release was a list of people he was banned from talking to and people involved in organizations that he was banned from talking to and that I was on that list of banned people and organizations and we weren't allowed to be friends for a couple of years. But I quite often, like I visited for Christmas one year and he said to me that actually he had it really easy in prison because if someone says, what are you in prison for? And your answer is, oh, I was stopping someone from killing up to 500 puppies a day. You're not necessarily a bad human. Like there are wow. way worse things that people in a maximum security prison are in there for and way easier people to hate. Yeah. I think the animal rights criminals in general, once you were inside, they, the stories I've heard is they got it pretty easy. But we had this, we were running this, this campaign that ended up operating in several cities around the world. And at one point, I had friends in prison in Holland, in the UK, and in America, uh, all for very similar things and all having totally different experiences. Okay. And what, what were those experiences? I mean, I just, from what I hear, the, the American prisoners had it a lot harder. This is weird. I haven't really thought about this for about a decade. And actually, what's really weird is, um, apart from the UK ones, they're not people I actually stay in contact with very much anymore, which is totally... And I've never thought about why I fell out of contact with all these people around the world. But also, I went on a massive change when I realized that I wanted to start traveling for, for work and, and aiming my life in a different direction. And I think I must have cut a lot of ties with people as well. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know what what their experiences are because it was so long ago and I wasn't stupid enough to write it down. Okay, but you know that because I'm trying to be as objective as I can here. But yeah. I, when I hear you say that you were on a list of people who someone who went to prison uh, wasn't yeah. allowed to speak to, you know that if it wasn't me now, someone else might say, "Well, hang on, you must have been up, you must have been up to some really dodgy things." Because how do you get on that kind of list? Yeah. And I think I ask myself really similar questions. Like, I don't know what it was about me that made me such a focal point. I know the day, the day that I actually finally got arrested, I got off this bus. We were going to this animal testing. Lab. Actually, the same lab I was talking about earlier that got broken into a few years after. We're going to protest this lab. And can I just stop you got for a second? Yeah, sure. Can I ask you, did you know who broke into the lab? I have no idea. Know? So okay. there are several times when I knew exactly what was going on and who did it. But that one is a total mystery to me, right. mainly because at the time that that happened, the majority of the people that I would have speculated it could have been were banged up. And actually, credit to whoever did it, they were obviously operating so far outside of our organization that none of us knew who it was, which is kind of perfect. I think a lot of these political campaigns, especially ones that ran the way that I or ours did, need to have several strings. You need to have that that legal face of the campaign who goes out and holds a placard and shouts a bit angry, but is also capable of interviewing with the BBC. But you also, I think in order to actually enforce change. And I think we're seeing this a lot with political movements now. 
is you do need that other head to it that does take a more direct action, but you need to keep them really separate in order to stop that legal arm of the campaign being totally shut down by authorities. Sorry, I'm not even sure if I answered that question. Uh, the answer no. is no. I don't, I, I don't know who did that particular action. Because you mentioned when we, when we first started talking, you know, mentioned about the, the sort of fight club type rules. Yeah, and I think that was very, like, the rule was if the action didn't involve you, don't ask about it. And it was quite often a real contributing factor to that paranoia if someone was too interested in an action that had happened and working out who had done it. we You were basically taught from the offset that the main thing is that something happened, not who did it or who they were with or who they associate with. Right. Which I think is was like... It... Sorry, I was going to say, I just think it's a really smart way of running something like that. Yes, of course it is. Everyone obeys by the rules and that kind of, uh, by the principles of it. And that makes me wonder, was anyone ever asked to leave or kicked out? Mm. Sounds like an extreme term, doesn't it? You know what? I'm thinking about that. I think it wasn't so much that people were would leave or get kicked out. I think there was a lot. I think as well, the thing is as well, it was, it was run very, very anarchistically. It's very hard to point out any one particular for want of a better phrase, ringleader. But I know that groups did have differing opinions on things and did splinter and people wouldn't work or operate with certain people. And that, if you can imagine from a tactical point for the police, was gold dust. Because if they could keep splintering these groups, they could break them down to a point where they were so small that they weren't effective. Uh, we saw that happen a, a couple of times Uh the one that jumps to mind was a, a campaign against, uh, I think I think it was a, a deer cull, and the woman that was organising it, I have, literally have no idea what happened to her because she got so obsessed with other issues. For example, she was very anti-abortion, which, and this might sound weird, as someone that is very pro the right of life for all animals, I'm very pro-choice when it comes to abortion. I don't believe in bringing a child into a world where it's not going to be supported, loved and cared for to the best extent possible. And literally, she became so obsessed with uh, protecting all life that she alienated herself from anyone that had even very slightly differing opinions. Similarly, there was a, I guess, organisations like this seem to eventually really attract all of the all of the carnival society all of the different groups and people that you can imagine uh, and there was a group in london who started operating incredible campaigns against the the fur trade in brick lane in particular and eventually became so fixated and obsessed on a, a government conspiracy that 9-11 was an inside job that they basically undid all of their work and created this massive splinter group between conspiracy theorists and literally everyone else. Right. And a lot of wow. them as well wouldn't talk to me. I started when I was um, when I was at, at uni. I was writing and volunteering for for the group Peter, 
who are a massive, massive uh, charity status organization now, very different to what I've been used to. I used to have to wear a proper shirt when I went into their office. Quite often we'd be working with governments to enforce change rather than against governments. Totally different way of working. But because I was working with Peter and I was working with the big guys, I basically got told that I was a sellout and got myself removed from all of the smaller London sort of offshoots and groups, which didn't really bother me because my objective was always just to be efficient and effective in, in saving whatever cause I was focusing on that week. And by that point, right. I didn't feel like the the splinter groups were really achieving that. I was quite happy to move on to a slightly more... I don't even know what the word is. It's not right-wing. It's definitely not right-wing, but it's a slightly more conservative way of campaigning. Okay. I took you off on a bit of a tangent and a fascinating yeah. one, I have to say. Take me back to being arrested. It was insane. When I got arrested, I had literally been 18 for about two weeks. And I'm pretty sure that being arrested was a premeditated thing because I don't believe that I did anything particularly special that any of the other, there was 200 people at this protest. I was the one person arrested and I was arrested for something so menial eventually and I think I was arrested to try and scare me out of doing anything more drastic um so what happened was I got got off this bus in a town square outside Wickham in in Hampshire and as I got off this bus the police used to have these things called spotter cards which was basically an A4 sheet of paper that every police officer would be given at the start of the day of of targets of people of interest of everyone that was organizing anything and i remember as i got off this bus a policeman tapped his friend on the shoulder looked me straight in the eye looked down at the sheet pointed at it pointed at me and then they both nodded and i remember at that point being like oh i'm going back in a police car today that's how that's going to happen Okay. And this march was the single most tame protest that you could ever imagine around a tiny town where barely anyone goes. They made this huge song and dance of shutting off the one main road of the town for 40 minutes. And we got 20 minutes outside the lab. And at the end of the 20 minutes, the majority of, of protesters there decided that they weren't done yet. So everyone really peacefully held hands, sat down in the road, and I didn't, uh, but I didn't leave. And the police started using megaphones to tell everyone to leave. And then they moved in really aggressively, just started picking people up, pushing them away. Yet again, still no one was arrested. No one else had been arrested. But as they got everybody up and got us all in big groups, they started using riot shields to just push everyone away from the area. And I, I'd been there with a, a new activist. And she was, I think, I want to say she was about 16. So she was young. It was her first protest. And I saw this policeman go to ram her with this uh, riot shield. And I thought, I'm not having that. 
So I put myself between her and him, and I was like, you know what? If I get punched with a riot shield, that's not the worst thing that could happen today. And I felt not just a riot shield, but I actually felt as I was about to walk away, this policeman lowered his shield, took his fist, and punched me right in the back of the head, like square in the back of the head. And it was it was hard and it was violent. It stopped me right in my place. And I turned around and I'm pretty sure what I was going to say is, what the fuck do you think you're doing? But I got as far as what the... And then I just felt this other hand come and it grabbed me by the chest. They pulled me by my T-shirt, pulled me over the first row of riot police, over the backup police. I was being pulled over two rows of riot police. I felt like I was flying that, like... I literally, because I just, I'm, I'm a skinny lad, and I just, I took off. They pulled me straight down. I think I went, I, put, I managed to get my arms out so that I went into the, the, the pavement or the road. I went into the road sort of arm first. The next thing I know, I have three policemen. Uh, one of them is pulling my arms behind my back. The other one is sat on my head. The other one is trying to restrain my feet, which weren't moving anyway. I end up in handcuffs. I'm just praying that someone else is filming this or that someone's seeing this. The BBC conveniently had just left. So they've obviously premeditated and timed when I was going to be arrested. They've all tried to arrange this story of what I've been arrested for. Um, originally, when, when, I, when they pulled me up eventually after everyone else had gone and they sat me against the lamppost with my arms tied behind my back, I said, what have I been arrested for? One of them went, don't you know you assaulted a police officer? And I went, what? And then it started to dawn on me that I was being fitted up for something that I almost definitely, I was like, do you know what? A lot's happened today, but I think I would imagine, or I think I would remember if I'd assaulted a policeman. Eventually, uh, they get it down a little bit. They, They bring down a police van to put me in the back of. I start thinking, I'm not going to get home in time for tea today. Uh, and also, I was I was 18. I was still living with my mum and dad. I thought, oh, my God, they don't know where I am today. I'm going to be out a long time, and this isn't going to be good for them. They put me in the back of this police car, and they swing the door shut, and I'm sat there for a little while. And then I open the door, and I just – my problem was that I was not naughty, but I was always cheeky, and I was always getting told off by policemen for treading on that line of what is appropriate. So they opened the door the first time and they said, right, you've been arrested. Have you got any questions? And I knew, I knew that all the training and everything I'd ever been told by any other activist was that you always keep silent until your your lawyer's present. But I knew there'd be absolutely no harm from asking me a totally irrelevant question. So when they they opened up the door and they, they finally like, reiterated what my rights were and said have you got any questions I said yep why is it that only the female coppers get to have the trilby hat and he wow. swung the door back in my face and they all walked off and left me on my own for 10 minutes and then the next time the door opened it was the policeman that had arrested me and he said look i'll live with you they're going to take you back to Ferrum police station i'm not actually from Ferrum though from a different police station and when my shift finishes i don't really want to come all the way to Ferrum to pick up my handcuffs so if I take off your handcuffs, are you going to lash out at all of us? And I looked at him and I went, mate, there are six of you and one of me and there are no cameras around. If I lash out, 
who do you think this ends badly for? Yeah. And they they took me, took me back to this police station. They sat me in the holding cell. It was a Saturday afternoon and the football had been on. So there was way more inebriated and violent people that they needed to book in before me. So I got kept in the holding cell for best part of an hour. Eventually they let me go for a week still in the holding cell. Um, and they sat me with this policewoman that was a lot like like everyone's mum. And she kept telling me that I was a good lad that had just been like mixed up in some bad stuff. And I'm sure that I'll sure that I'll turn my life around. And I was I just remember thinking, I still am not convinced I've done anything illegal, let alone bad. And then I just like I know I was meant to keep quiet, but I was just very selective about what I let out. Also, I just struggled to keep quiet. I don't think if you imprison me for I think I was in there for 12 hours eventually and I figure like that's a long time for someone like me to be quiet so I ended up ended up making friends with the first one when they finally put me in a in a police cell I ended up making friends with the first one that came around and he came back and he's like I've had a look on the bookshelf and I've got this Friends of the Earth magazine I feel like it's right up your street so for 12 hours all I had was a Friends of the Earth magazine I I taught myself the barcode for it song out of the barcode and a tap dance uh, used the one phone call I had stupidly used my one phone call to call up my girlfriend and ask if she could bring down some hula hoops rather than calling my mum and dad to let them know where I was and then her mum wouldn't let her go down to the police station anyway and then I called up we had we used to have a lawyer that would work on all of the animal rights cases and he knew all of us and he knew the law that we would all get pulled in for like the back of his hand so I called up him and by that point they'd already decided that I wasn't going to face the assault charge instead they were going to try me for the public orders act but a really really niche section of the public orders act which basically in in layman's terms translates to I didn't leave an area when I was told to by a senior police officer which has a maximum sentence of a menial fine I could still get a criminal record. It was still, uh, at that point, stopped me going to university because one of my conditions for entry to university was a clean criminal record. So I was still a little bit panicked, but I kind of knew as well. Uh, they sent in eventually before my interview because this solicitor I wanted couldn't be there. They said, do you want the duty solicitor? And I really stupidly said yes. And like genuinely in the entire situation, that was my biggest mistake because they sent in this guy who... After my interview, as I was being led back to my cell, was sat having a cup of coffee with the same guys that had interviewed me. And I realized at that point that he wasn't there to be my friend. Right. Like He gave me his card and I burnt it afterwards. I thought if I'm going to court, I would rather go unrepresented than have him there. The guy told me to talk through the interview, to tell them exactly what had happened and to just say I was sorry. And eventually I, they offered me a warning and it wouldn't go to court. And at that point, I realized that I was being played. And I said, no, you know what? Let's take this to court. So I sat. Eventually, I got released at like 2 a.m. My friend had found out where I'd been taken to from the other police at the protest. And he had sat on the on the wall outside Fairham Police Station for about six hours before I got out. I just remember being so happy to see someone that cared, that would put that much effort into waiting for me. 
And I sat on bail for a couple of months and tried to go on life as normal as possible. And then I just got a letter one day that said, oh, due to a lack of evidence, it's all been dropped. And I thought nothing of it until nearly a year later when the same police officer that had asked me to inform all my friends said to me, it was just before I went away to university, and he said, we were, I don't want to say hanging out, because we were on a protest one day, and it was the end of a protest, and like, to be fair to him, and this will definitely cause me some enemies when I say this, like, that man has done some horrendous things, and he has twisted and turned stories to achieve whatever result he wanted and whoever he wanted to get into prison. But to be fair to him, I genuinely don't believe now that he's a bad human because before I went to university, I was doing the thing where I, I mess around. And he went, you're moving away, aren't you? Because they knew everything about you. I went, yeah, I'm moving away. He said, right, come here. And he took me around the back of this bush. And then he said to me, there was only a couple of us there. And he said, uh, I've got something to tell you. And I thought, oh God, I do not like where this is going. Because the last time that you tried to confide anything in me you wanted me to rat on my friends he said yeah. do you remember last year when you were nick outside of the lab and i went yeah and he went do you not think it's weird that all the evidence disappeared and it got dropped almost like someone had accidentally deleted some of the footage of the event and that's all he said thank you very much for listening i do really appreciate it and thanks to my guest as I was saying, I will be speaking to someone else from the animal rights community soon, a career activist. And next week's episode is with a guy called Joey Barnett, who did 12 years for armed robbery. And he was really interesting to talk to. I'm on Twitter at Matt Price Comedy. Now, you might be wondering, all right, where's the comedy element? Well, there are episodes called Dave Courtney, Brendan and Me. And that is a series with Dave and Brendan and me that's very funny. So you can listen to those if you want to have a laugh. Thank you very much for your support. I really do appreciate it. And I will speak to you soon.